Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, The Black Radical Tradition, features historian Dr. Raymond Winbush. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, cool. All right, so we'll start. So uh, we're going to start by uh, telling me who you are and talk about the work that you're doing now. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Ray Winbush. I'm director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, senior research professor there. Um, I am doing a lot of work right now. Uh, primary work on issues of reparations. Um, also doing some research on a sister uh, that lived like 230 years ago named Belinda Royale in Medford, Massachusetts, and she was enslaved, and asked her or told her so-called master that she wanted uh, reparations for 50 years of unpaid labor, and actually won the case before the Massachusetts legislature. I'm in the process of doing a documentary, or I'm not doing it, but a sister friend of mine is doing a documentary that uh, uh, we're looking for her grave site right now. And what else? Working with uh, Young Black Males, that was my first book. Uh, that just kind of pervades everything I do a lot of times. So that's about it. Okay, cool. <clears throat> so we're here and we're talking about the Black Radical Tradition. So if we can sort of, if you can sort of start at its earliest inception, talk about some of the theory, like what it is, how did it evolve, you know, and things like that. Well, you know, I think some people you know, Africans in this country think that the black radical, you know, tradition started like with the Black Panther Party in 66. In reality, there's been a struggle since we got to these shores. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the radical tradition consisted of when we resisted before we even got to the barracoons in Africa, whenever we resisted. And there's actual partial proof for that. I mean, you look at this country, uh, there's always been rebellions and insurrections of African people against uh, their European oppressor, not only in the United States, but Brazil, throughout the Caribbean, and so forth. Um, one of the earliest ones, which is probably my favorite one, is the Stono Rebellion in uh, 1731 in South Carolina. There was a brother there named Cato, and he... The Spanish, as you know, controlled Florida. And they said that if any African, they were trying to destabilize the British, so they said if any African enslaved person got to Florida, it would be free. So Cato got together with about 60 uh, other enslaved Africans, started uh, by the Distal River in South Carolina, and he killed like 30 or 40 black folk, I mean white folks, uh, who were in their way, and they were going to march south through Georgia into Florida and be free. He killed something like 65 white people. Uh, he was subsequently hanged and so forth. So to me, that's a radical tradition. 
Uh, most of us know about Nat Turner uh, in 1831 and his rebellion. Uh, you go to people like um, Martin Delaney, who was, uh, some people call him the father of black nationalism. Uh, he was the third, I believe the third person to be admitted to Harvard Medical School, but he was a black radical. Uh, this brother was wearing Kenty cloth back in 1865. And uh, I think it was Frederick Douglass that said, uh, every morning I wake up and thank God I am a man. Uh, every day my friend Martin Delaney wakes up and thanks God that he's a, a black man. And he was calling for black folk to go to Liberia to involve themselves in just leaving this country. And then you can keep going on and on. Um, you know, obviously Marcus Garvey. I mean, that was a radical tradition to mobilize before Twitter, before Facebook, all of this stuff. Something like 10% of the black population in this country uh, were involved with the Garvey movement. And then out of that movement, of course, Elijah Muhammad, who was a Garveyite, as well as Malcolm X was a Garveyite. So, I think what we do is make a mistake of not going beyond the civil rights movement when we talk about black radical tradition, because it's all there. Can, we, can you uh, sort of uh, talk about, if there was sort of a, you could talk about the civil rights of how it doesn't start there, but can we sort of, if, if you can, sort of pinpoint sort of at, uh, periods in, in history that birthed sort of what is the, the people who came out of the civil rights eventually getting to the struggles for black liberation in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Well, I mean, the tradition is so many instances of that. Like 1919 was called the Red Summer. Uh, there were more, uh, you know, the, the term riot prior to 1965, uh, Watson Rebellion actually meant uh, white people going into black communities and destroying black and terrorizing black people. When 1919, there was a brother uh, from the Virgin Islands in uh, New York. His name was, was Sir Cyril, no, not Sir Cyril, but Cyril Briggs. He formed this thing called the African Black Brotherhood. And he called for black people to start arming themselves with guns and to go in to protect their communities when these white people were rioting. Um, that's a tradition that was born directly out of what white people did to us. But if you travel down the timeline a little further, you see, uh, you know, when we talk about, let me, I'm going to be nice about this. Um, I think like I heard a young man during the Black Lives Matter movie, he said, this is not your grandmother's or grandfather's civil rights movement which means that he kind of bought into the idea that everybody was talking about nonviolence and all of this stuff. Uh, that's just so because it, it, it like negates the contributions of the Re Republic of New Africa under Mario Bedelli, who systematically uh, had a PhD, uh, formed the Republic of New Africa in Mississippi, had a compound and a shootout with the uh, Mississippi State Police. He served nine years in prison because of that. Um, in the gates, um, Charles Evers, Medgar Evers' brother, who said that if white people were going to go after their children, 
we will shoot back. In fact, the night Medgar Evers was killed in June of 63, that was one of the few nights that he didn't carry a gun with him. Uh, most people in the Mississippi Freedom Movement in 64, 65, they all had guns. Um, you probably have heard about the Deacons of Defense. Uh, they protected Dr. King throughout the South, uh, based in Louisiana, and were a very powerful self-defense group. And then, of course, you got a little bit later the Black Panther Party um, with Huey Newton, you know, uh, Eldridge Cleveland, Bobby Seale. And I think, so the tradition comes from white people doing things to us as they always have done, killing us. Uh, one of the things that I think has changed from the 60s till now is that during the civil rights era, self-defense was always discussed. It was part of, I mean, Dr. King was talking about nonviolence, but Malcolm was talking about that made no sense if somebody was going to go after you. And I think that guns and self-protection, and I'm, I'm forgetting Robert Williams, his classic book, Negroes with Guns. Uh, he was a head of the NAACP in North Carolina, and Roy Wilkins kicked him out of the NAACP because he said, if they come after me, we're going to shoot them. But now, if you say Black Lives Matter plus guns, people say, oh, we can't, we got to go nonviolent or something like that. I was glad to see that in Dallas, there's a group called the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, and they are armed. And... I think there's no consequences now for killing a black person. But if there were consequences, I think white people would quit killing us so readily. Um, I sort of want to go back and sort of talk about some of these, uh, these armed revolutionary groups that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Um, I sort of want to start with RAM. And if yeah. you could sort of just like give your sort of, I guess, reflections and, and any sort of, uh, sort of take us back to what, what conditions produce these types of uh, a RAM or, or a BLA or organiz underground organizations like that? Well, all of those groups, I mean, Asada Shakur, you know, that entire Matulu Shakur, all of that, it was produced by violence of whites towards black folk. I mean, that is all. We rarely, under very rare circumstances, initiated violence against white people at the same level that they have initiated against us. And so um, you see the rebellions of the 60s, and I think we're on the 50th anniversary of the one in Newark, uh, Watts, Cleveland, where I'm from. All of these rebellions occurred when white people were shooting at us, when cops were killing us. Um, the 50th anniversary of Detroit is coming up in the famous uh, Algiers Motel incident in which... Uh, some police just simply killed, tortured and killed black people in a, a hotel that was just a few blocks from the center of what cops had been brutalized. So all of those movements came out of saying, you are being violent towards us, we will be violent towards you, we will retaliate, we will make it consequential for you to kill an African. And I think as far as I'm concerned, again, I think that has been lost with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. They don't talk about arms at all. And maybe because of where some of their funding comes from, but that's a whole nother discussion, so. Uh, 
problems. Uh, do you think, what was sort of the, uh, I, I don't want to say the critique of this, but sort of in the black community, why, why was this not necessarily like embraced mainstream in the, in the uh, black community? Well, because the media promoted Dr. King. I mean, I was a sophomore in college when Dr. King was shot in Alabama, no less. And, um, and all we heard was Dr. King. And you gotta keep in mind, this is before Twitter and Facebook and even email, you know, all we saw on TV, Dr. King, Dr. King. But a lot of us knew about what the Panthers were doing. We knew what Ram was doing. We knew what uh, Republic RNA down in Mississippi was doing. And so we said, why aren't they ever on television? Why aren't they on the radio? And that's not casting aspersion on Dr. King or anything like that, but it shows how racist the media was in feeding us an image that the only way you could resist white supremacy was to be passive and nonviolent. Probably the most visible person during that time that was in that radical tradition, of course, was Malcolm X and the Panthers. And the Panthers didn't get visible until they marched into the state assembly in Sacramento. Um, I think that the tr this is the first generation that I've lived where armed self-defense is not discussed, you know, and I don't, you know, the only thing I can say is that everybody's bought into this kind of kinky and doctrine, you know, doctrine of nonviolence. Well, do you feel that, um, and I'm reading from my notes here from someone sure. to ask you, do you feel that the, uh, the black bourgeois class has sort of taken a leadership role and become the face of the black liberation movement? You know, that's the understatement of the year. They have. They always have. Um, when Dorothy Height was alive, she was very close. She was on my board when I was teaching at Fisk. And Dr. Height told, she was one of the two women that was on the stage during the uh, 1963 march. And she was talking about how behind, the night before Dr. King made his famous I Have a Dream speech, that the black bourgeoisie, and I, I mean, it was the so-called Big Five that Malcolm talked about, Whitney Young, Roy Wilkins, uh, head of NAACP, I'm blocking his name right now, but all of these people were just discussing this, you know, well, I think that the more educated people ought to be the spokesperson. You know, of course, it wound up being Dr. King, as we know, but the black bourgeoisie has always been, you know, like, I like, you know, Nathan Hare's words, you know, black Anglo-Saxons that they've always been like chocolate-covered white people trying to live inside of the system of white supremacy, uh, which they can never do comfortably, and but at the same time kind of poo-pooing any other ideas other than nonviolence, if they do that. So, you know, I mean, the black bourgeoisie, you could go, look, you can go back to Denmark Vesey in 1822, uh, the so-called coloreds, and that was the actual name, the coloreds in South Carolina. If VC had uh, been successful, black people would have literally took over the entire state of South Carolina in that rebellion. VC was very middle class. He was the richest black person in um, uh, South Carolina at that time. And the only reason why he was in South Carolina because his wife was enslaved and her so-called master wouldn't let him buy it. And he was betrayed two nights before the rebellion by a middle-class black person. 
So we've always had the Ben Carsons in our community. Um, we've always had people like, well, I almost the, the, the Clarence Thomases. I mean, these are self-hating, what I call super slaves that tend to be water hoses about, you know, the uh, radical tradition in our communities. Can you talk about, you touched on some of the women. Can we sort of discuss, like, uh, the women's role in the radical tradition? You can, again, you can walk us through a timeline. You can go uh, however you want to well, see, again, I think we portray Harriet Tubman as being like, I mean, she went down south. I mean, I, she's in the state of Maryland where I live now, and she went down south several times. You know, some people say at least 40 times and brought back three to 400 black, but we don't really know how many. But, you know, people always talk about here rescuing black folk. The other thing that Harriet did, she had two guns, and she was only four foot 11, and... They said when she went into the the um, so-called slave hovels or whatever, that she told everybody, look, you got to go right now. And if you didn't go, we don't know how many <laughs> Harriet didn't, you know, messed up, but uh, she took people out. I consider that a, you know, a major form of radicalism. You got Callie House, who in the 1880s, was you know what I call the mother of the reparation struggle. Callie House um, wanted pensions or reparations for all those who had been enslaved, and and I don't know how she did this, but she actually got six hundred thousand former enslaved Africans to sign a petition saying that they wanted compensation for their time of enslavement. You go on to like Amy Garvey, uh, the, the wife of. Uh, Marcus Garvey and her carrying on the tradition after he passed. And then you move into the 60s with people uh, like Angela Davis and also Queen Mother Moore, uh, who presented a petition to John F. Kennedy demanding reparations. So the black radical female tradition has been just as important as the black radical male tradition in our community. Um, I sort of want to move on. Uh, I want to talk to you sort of about the, uh, the Black Revolutionary Review, sort of the Black uh, National Thesis. This was the Congress of the, of the African people. Yeah. And sort of, if you, if you could just sort of explain what that was and, and talk about its significance. Well, you know, Black nationalism has been defined in a bunch of ways, but the stuff that I've written about it just simply means a people that who are nationalists, Black nationalists, are they don't see their rescue, their salvation, their connection to the white world. It's us who has to do this. So you don't see Jews saying, we've got to join hands with Palestinians. You don't see Palestinians saying, we've got to join hands with Jews to be saved. Uh, you don't see a lot of you know, indigenous Americans saying that. The only people that said that we got to do this thing together are black folk. It's like, and we tried integrationism in the 60s. It didn't work. And, and going way back to the nationals like Martin Delaney, he said we should never tie our destiny to what our white, and he didn't call them brothers, what white people said. Or, 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 uh, so nationalism to me has always been a pan-Africanist movement that we must save ourselves without the help of white people. Um, 
you know, the third Malcolm, as I said, if you have Malcolm Little, um, Malcolm X and El Haj Malika Shabazz, he always said in his third Malcolm, he said that he always regretted when that white person, white girl came up to him and said, what can I do to help the movement? He said, nothing. And, you know, but the third Malcolm, which, which was, who was a little more integrationist, said that he wished he could tell that woman now that she could help. Well, see, I don't think white people, white, white people have always betrayed black people. The system of white supremacy demands that. And I think that black nationalists say we don't need to do, we just don't need to deal with white people at the level of our liberation. And Matulu Shakur, the BLA, all of those organizations, the Black Panther Party used to say that until they got integrated because of white money and stuff. But uh, early on, none of that. You know, nationalists have always felt you got to do for self. And probably the biggest expression of black nationalism right now in terms of an organization is Minister Farrakhan. Because he, he got his money in black bank. That's why he can say whatever he wants. Because he's not dependent on white money to do anything for him. And so many of these organizations, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about the NAACP board. And it's, I think it's 54 members on the NAACP board, black bourgeoisie. And there's some state legislatures that don't have 54 people on it. Nothing gets done. They're not talking about any radical tradition. They are totally dependent upon white uh, and Jewish money for them to sustain themselves. And for them to even say things like, um, you know, we're not going to depend on white money, they would be terrified of saying that. They're a bunch of super slaves. Let me, uh, you mentioned uh, Matulu Shakur. I, I want to circle back and sort of get your, I guess, your statement or sort of what your thoughts on political prisoners and why this country sort of doesn't acknowledge that political prisoners exist. And just sort of talk about like, the Sundiata Kohli's and yeah. You know, the brother of, of, of. Well, the United States officially doesn't recognize what the United States does very cleverly. You know, political prison, the term itself is, always, is a term that black radicals and others always impose because we feel that those people were locked up for political reasons. The United States said, no, you know, so let's take, you know, Mumia Abu Jamal. You know, he's a political prisoner, in my opinion. What the United States does very successfully is criminalize black people, men and women, at young ages, boys, girls, provoke them into doing something, uh, like Brother Jamil, or uh, I don't believe to this day that Mumia killed uh, that cop, but provoke them, and so they criminalize them and then they'll pin some type of thing on them because of their political activities. So technically we don't have political prisoners in the United States, but that simply isn't true. A lot of people are, the Panthers that are still locked up in United States prisons are there because of their political activity. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Um, and even before, you know, I mean, you know, Obama, We've been trying to get Marcus Garvey, a, you know, a posthumous pardon for years, and we thought Obama would do it. He said no, because, and I believe Marcus Garvey was a political prisoner. So this goes way back. Callie House was a political prisoner. 
when she was asking people for, um, you know, asking the government for reparations. And a young person in government by the name of J. Edgar Hoover specifically targeted her. The post office back in the 1910s and 20s was the equivalent of the internet today. And they got her on mail fraud just the way they got Marcus Garvey on mail fraud. So, you know, I, there are political prisoners in the United States. According to the federal government, there aren't any, but that's, that's bovine feces or something. Why do you, why do you think the, uh, or as, as part of the government's campaign to sort of discredit political prisoners, why do you think the, necessarily the black community hasn't sort of won up more of a cause? Like, you, we, for instance, there was like the Jericho movement, mm -hmm. but it's sort of, again, it died down after a while. Why do you think, how do you think these, uh, these things are suppressed so easily. Well, they're infiltrated for one. Uh, COINTELPRO, I think, is far more sophisticated than in the 70s. If you read that J. Edgar Hoover stuff about we don't want another black messiah like Dr. King to arise or, of course, Malcolm X, I think the COINTELPRO uh, movement right now is very, uh, it's in place by the government. Um, I got a student friend of mine says, you know, FBI now stands for Facebook and Instagram. I mean, we are voluntarily giving our information to people. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and she said how she was in Facebook jail, you know, because she said something too radical. I guess it was considered radical. So she's been banned for 24 hours. I've been banned for three days. I have a friend of mine, I don't want to mention his name, but he was banned for 30 days. I don't know what he had done, but so I think that the COINTELPRO, the COINTELPRO movement has been very successful in creating chaos and mayhem among those more radical organizations. And uh, I, I mean, the guy that when Malcolm got shot in New York, uh, that was gave him artificial you know, respiration, you know, breathing in his mouth, we know now was a spy for the New York Police Department. The guy that took that famous picture of Dr. King, everybody pointing on the balcony, uh, was a Memphis photographer who was working for the FBI. So we've got these agent provocateurs right now, and they've been very successful in um, you know, upending, in many cases, the black radical tradition. I got uh, three more questions that I want to ask. Um, one, I want to talk about uh, CLR James. He spoke oh, about yeah. the, revo the revolutionary answer to the Negro problems in the U.S. Um, if you could sort of, again, talk to us about the importance of, of that text and sort of, uh, is it relevant today? Sort of your thoughts on its manifestations in yeah. 2017. Well, I have a lot of respect for CLR James. I, the part, you know, Black nationalists and black Marxists have always had some tension between them, if you, and that's probably putting it mildly. And C.L.R. James was a Marxist socialist, and I believe, especially in his book, Black Jacobins, he did a lot of good, wrote a lot of good stuff about kind of a Marxist history of Haiti. Um, I think that's the truth. I always challenge my Marxist friends, and I do have some, you know, I always challenge them. I said, look, you guys can talk about the proletariat and the, you know, the dialectics of liberation, and you can use all these long, big words and stuff like that, but y'all need to organize better. 
if you look at those who have organized, unfortunately, it hasn't been those who are Marxists. I mean, C.L.R. James, when he was living in London, I mean, he really didn't organize black. Well, he was writing books, and I think that's wonderful. But I think that the Marxists, the black Marxists, have to go beyond that and do more organizing. And the organizing that has occurred in the black community or the mobilizing, and there is a difference, has always come from the tra uh, traditional black uh, nationalists. We were talking about women. I, I should have interjected her name into this earlier, but uh, Claudia Jones, uh, she wrote about uh, an end to the neglect of the problem of the Negro woman. If you could sort of expand on, again, why is her name sort of not one of the names that's sort of you know up there in the, in the national conscious? Because a lot of brothers in the movement have been sexist and misogynist. Claudia Jones' book, and, and it was also, what's her name? Uh, I'm blocking her name, but she also wrote about how the plight of black women, you know, was in part due to the oppression, you know, that they experienced from black men. And, you know, and then, you know, her is in the same tradition as Sojourner Truth, you know, when she said, aren't I a woman, you know, white feminists have never been the friend of black women even though they wanted to make themselves appear that way. And it's, the proof is in this past election when 53% of white women voted for that idiot in the White House. And so Claudia Jones's writings are very important, but I don't think they got a lot of play simply because a lot of black men, they, they, you know, the, the black radical tradition has traditionally been masculinized. And I think, you know, when after um, Kwame Ture made that infamous statement, they asked, where's the place of the uh, black woman in the movement? And he said, prone. You know, it, it showed the sexism in the movement. But Claudia Jones is somebody that should be read just, read just like June Jordan and others who were in that tradition. Do you want to... Uh I know I said I have one more question than I do, but yes, I still want you to uh, talk more about this, uh, the, this, the sexism that was going on in, in the movement. Because this is one of the critiques, but this is also something that sort of gets like swept under the rug. Well, there was sexism. I mean, you know, I ain't, I'm not going to call any names, but, you know, a lot of the um, black so-called revolutionaries, they were treating their women really bad. Uh, they beat them, they hit them, some still are. They made women appear to be less than, some still are. And I think that during the 60s, a, a lot of the men just simply wouldn't tolerate black women, you know, being who they really were. The Panthers probably were the first group that kind of put them on equal basis. And, I, and even then, you got to put that as a footnote. Um, Kathleen Cleaver and I are good friends, and Kathleen, you know, she talked about the sexism within the movement. And I mean, and how that took a lot of different forms in terms of writing, uh, that their, their writings were less than. Elaine Jones comes along in the Panther movement, but you know, Elaine now, as everybody knows, is probably the highest paid you know, 
sex object by the FBI because she was part of COINTELPRO movement. So I think that the sexism still exists to a degree. Um, it has become a divisive issue because I've heard some fairly popular people, black psychologists whose name I will leave mentioned, but he will divide black women and say negative things about black women in very sexist ways. And a lot of sisters got upset about that stuff and still are very upset about it. And uh, finally, um, could you talk about what your, what your message would be to the next generation of black leadership, whether it's the, the grassroots organizers, whether it's uh, the people who sort of the reformists who want to get into politics and change from the inside. What's your, uh, what's your overall take on, on how to ultimately achieve self-sustainability, which is what the black radical tradition it is. I mean, you know, my words would be that I, I think that they have to do two things. They have to link their struggle to the Africa, the continent. That's Pan-Africanism, I know. The second thing they've got to do, they have to be willing to talk more about issues of self-defense. And a third one would be the issue that we just discussed, the whole issue of sexism within the movement um, and how that knocks out 50% of the, you know, black folk in the movement. You know, the issue of LGBT to me is less than because black folk have always had LGBT. I mean, during the civil rights era, it was, you know, Baird Rustin, it was James Baldwin, who was part of that radical tradition as well. So I don't see that as important as I do the issue between black men and black women. I think that together, uh, black men and black women can achieve much more, but I think the system of white supremacy at every level possible tries to divide black men and black women at a lot of levels, at just so many levels. And um, if they and they did it during enslavement when they sold us, you know, husband from wife, you know, daughter from mother and father and stuff. And they're still doing it in a lot of different ways, you know, and. You know, like and this and I'm going to say this. I think that I doubt Venus Williams would have been on the cover of Vanity Fair, nude and pregnant, if she had married a black man. Um, there's nothing radical about that, but there is something unique. It's almost like um, the magazine and white supremacy said, "Look, we've got this strong sister, pregnant by this white guy." And, and I think that part of that, we have to realize as black men and black women how we hurt each other. We have to be each other's comfort at every level possible. And the system militates against all of that. And I think black leadership have to, has to be more forthright in discussing things like that. All right, cool. Okay. okay.